Wellspring Podcast is presented by Wellspring of Life Church, a community of faith, hope, and purpose. If you have your Bibles, let's open them up to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. There may not be any statement more frustrating to a child than the one many fathers say, which is, I'm your father, that's why. (laughs) Dads have a habit of saying these words when their children keep asking and kind of driving uh, a dad or a parent, you know, to the brink of frustration when when that child keeps saying, don't you just love it? But why? But why? But why? When we just cannot think of anything else to say, we pull rank. (laughs) I'm your father. That's why. (laughs) You know what's interesting about that statement is when we were kids, we didn't like it either. (laughs) You remember that? We, We didn't care for that statement any more than our own kids do. It makes absolutely no sense to a child's way of thinking, especially no sense to a teenager (laughs) but as soon as we become parents ourselves those words make so much more sense why is that (laughs) we can hardly keep from saying them to our own kids once again what why do we do that i think we all know why if we're going to be honest it's because we know how much we do for them the sacrifices we make, the long hours that are put in, providing food, shelter, so on, so forth, clothing, long nights caring for them when they are sick. And so the tendency, I think, for a father or a mother to think to ourselves is that the, the least that you can do is show some respect And comply with the few simple guidelines and requests. As Paul writes to the Corinthians, encouraging them to turn from their quarrels and divisions, we find him appealing to them as their spiritual father. It's really what he's doing. In fact, he he so much says so and in this fourth chapter in verse 14 he says i am writing this not to shame you but to warn you as my dear children he says even if you had ten thousand guardians in christ you do not have many fathers for in christ jesus i became your father through the gospel And so he's appealing to them on that basis as the one who has brought them, seen to it that they were born into the faith. Others had been involved in in the church and helped the church at Corinth, but only one person had brought them to life in Christ, which is Paul himself. So he asked them to remember that they were his spiritual kids, his spiritual children, and so therefore listen carefully to what he had to say. 
Here's a universal truth I want to share with you. I think you will agree with it. No parent likes to see a son or daughter go astray. Isn't that true? No parent likes to see that. Over the years, I've seen this scenario time and time again. Mothers and fathers who had given their all to bringing up their sons or daughters in the faith, watching helplessly as their children slip away and disappear into the darkness of the temptation that this world offers. But I've also watched parents greatly rejoice, kind of like shouting on the mountaintop when their prodigal son or daughter come to their senses having been broken due to some bad and harmful decisions and the cruelty of this world, but return to the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When the Apostle Paul heard the alarming report about the Corinthians' immature and worldly and carnal beliefs and behavior, he responds like a loving, caring, concerned father would. After all, he was their spiritual father in the faith, and he he felt a deep personal responsibility for their spiritual growth and their spiritual health, as any good father would feel for his child. Yet Paul's approach to spiritual parenting didn't look anything like what was happening in Corinth. They were, they were coming up short on discipline, rather weak and lacking in the area of correction. This becomes really, really clear in the next chapter, in chapter 5. Instead, Paul applied the Heavenly Father's approach to discipline, knowing that eternal benefits far outweigh the momentary anguish of correction. The writer to the Hebrews says to us, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained or disciplined by it. That's Hebrews 12, 11. And so with authority and with love, you could say that Paul took his pen and used it as an instrument of correction. Now, I purposely put that word instrument in there because it's a soft word for the rod (laughs) of correction. To discipline the misbehaving, carnal thinking Corinthians. Now, with that in mind, we can read the disciplinary reproofs they received and see just how they might, just maybe, apply to us today. So, verse 1 of chapter 4, this then. Let me pause a moment. This then is kind of similar to the word that we find sometimes in the Bible, therefore. And you've heard me say this before. You know, you want to ask, why is therefore, therefore, right? (laughs) 
this then is similar. So let's be reminded that when this letter was originally written, it wasn't written in chapter and verses. That was added later for our benefit, right? So for the sake of continuity, let's go back to the last couple of verses of chapter 3. Verse 21 of chapter 3. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. They are all yours. And you are of Christ and Christ is of God. And then chapter 4, verse 1, this then, as it refers to that, is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries that God has revealed. What we have here in my estimation in verse 1 is one of the most important verses in the entire Bible with regards to understanding what it means to truly be a follower of Jesus Christ. Paul begins with, as we've just read, this then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ. It's interesting, and I want you to know this, the word that Paul used here for servant is not the typical one that we usually find in the New Testament. It's a different word. The word that he, he uses is the word that literally means under rower or an under oarsman, okay? Think first century. Think there's no motors in ships and boats. The motor were humans, and in this case, slaves under Roman following the direction of their master in order to, for the ship to continue staying on course, keeping it from going in circles and arriving in the place it is expected to arrive. Okay? An under rower is the term that he uses here. They were slaves who were down in the lower part of the ship. Not a pretty sight. Not one of, to be proud of. It wasn't one that got a lot of visibility. <laughs> They're hidden. They're down in the belly of the ship, rowing under the authority of their master. Paul chooses this term rather than the usual one that, that we find to describe Please don't miss this. Uses this term, under rower, to describe what it means to be a faithful servant of Christ. It casts an image of the body of Christ working together to take the ship of the gospel, if you would, wherever the Lord would direct it. It is cooperatively obeying what the Lord has commanded us to do. Can you imagine if there are under Roman, under rowers down in the belly of that ship and some of them think, no, I'm going to go this way. And others think, no, I'm going to do this way. What a mess that would be. Yeah. Amen. Anybody see a connection there <laughs> to our time and to our day? 
We have got to be together in this. Rowing together, if you would. Cooperatively. Obeying our master. Following his direction. Obeying him all the way. Amen? Amen. Faithful servants of Christ are also described as those who are entrusted with the mysteries that God has revealed. The word those is another pretty interesting word. It is the word that often gets translated as stewards in our Bible, who were managers of a household or an estate. That's what the steward's responsibility and job was and understood to be. Their responsibility was to devote their time, their efforts, their talent, their gifts, whatever, towards making their master's household or business successful. The word steward also carries the idea and refers to the slave who knew the location of his master's wealth. This was important for him to know this as he could get to it and use it to better his master's business. As seen in Genesis 39, this is the kind of slave, the kind of steward that Joseph was in Potiphar's house. Same idea. What does this mean for us today? As faithful stewards in God's service, we're also to be able to to know the location of the wealth of God's word. Oh. Jesus says to us in Matthew 13, 52, therefore, every teacher of the law who has been instructed about the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as the old. What is Jesus talking about? He's talking about the ability, as it relates to us, to locate the illustrations, the types, the stories, the principles, and the precepts of our faith of both the Old and New Testaments for the purpose of not only our own life application, our growth and maturity, but to have something to pass on to others. We need to know the location of these mysteries, these treasures found in God's Word. Isn't it amazing? Here we are again. It seems like always it comes back to God's Word. Read your Bible, folks. How many times have you heard me say that? Especially in our times and in our days, we dare not ignore this. You've got to spend your time here. There is no longer any ifs, ands, or buts about it. It is life-giving, life-saving. Amen? It is God's word, his letters, his message to us. And not wanting to sound extreme, but we are dead in the water without it. Read your Bible, folks. 
don't give up. Just keep reading, even if you don't fully understand, because you see what you're doing is, is you're feeding your heart, you're feeding your soul, you're feeding your spirit. And in due season, because it is God's word, enveloped with his promise, alive by his spirit, in due season, even the book of Leviticus will begin to make sense. <laughs> in 2 Kings chapter 3, we read about a drought that was destroying the land. So Jehoram, king of Israel, called for Elisha, the prophet. Here's what you are to do, Elisha says. Dig ditches right here in the dry sand. As I was working on this, I'll be honest with you, the thought came to me. I was trying to imagine what our response today would be <laughs> to that directive. How about I put it like that? You know, you know what it would be, wouldn't you? You, you weirdo. <laughs> yeah, it would be like kids. But why? You don't see, prophet, that this is dry ground, dry sand. There hasn't been anything grown on this for years. This dry ground hasn't seen water in who knows how long. There's no way. I'm not doing it. Come on. Now, that's just in picture, you know, take that and apply it to all of the different ways you basically have done that to the Lord. In whatever way he's tried to lead you and guide you in something that in your human thinking didn't make sense, but it was coming from God on high. How dare we say, I don't think so. But we do it all the time, don't we? Fortunately for these people in 2 Kings chapter 3, they did it. They didn't argue. They just did it. And the next day, guess what? Those ditches were filled with water. Woo! So too, we see occasionally throughout God's word, water as a type of of his word, right? And so we're to keep digging ditches. Even when it feels dry, even when it feels like we're getting nowhere, we're to keep digging ditches. And eventually, the refreshing springs of God's word will flow into your hearts. That would have been a really good place for you to say, Amen. Amen. You ever wonder why the Lord wrote the Bible the way he did? In other words, why didn't he simply write section one, marriage? <laughs> section two, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Section three, Bible prophecy, you know, so on and so forth. Maybe. This is how we would have done it in our human thinking, in our human reasoning. But aren't you glad 
you really do need to be glad that he didn't do it the way you and I would have done. The Lord in his infinite wisdom says, no, analogies and stories, pictures and even genealogies will be mysteries to the carnal mind. But on the other hand, they will be exciting, applicable, wonderful to anyone of any age in any culture who consistently will continue to dig away, studying them day after day after day. It's like, can we use this example? The Word of God becomes our spiritual vitamin. Some of you take vitamins faithfully. Some of you are on meds and you take them faithfully. Isn't it interesting? You know, we take those, but we, and we kind of like take them in faith. We, we take them trusting and believing that they are going to do what we are told they're supposed to do. But we can't see that happening, can we? Once it passes through our mouths, it's gone. We can't see anything happening. Isn't it interesting? I think for some, I'm sure none of you, are more faithful in taking our meds and vitamins than we are spending time right here in God's spiritual vitamins and meds, if you would, for our lives. We are stewards of the mysteries, Paul says, or the secret things of God. And what are they, the mysteries? The truth of God's word. And back to what I said earlier, our being following that with our ability to be able to locate them and know where the wealth of God's scripture is for our lives and for others. They are called mysteries because only believers can understand them. You see, Paul had already told us and written in chapter 2 verse 14 the man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God for they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned you see there is a simple yet very profound principle that we followers of Christ either totally forget or sometimes just overlook because of our natural heredity, I'm referring to our sin nature, we are not holy, nor on our own will we ever be holy. But if Jesus Christ is truly the regenerator, someone who can put his own heredity of holiness and righteousness into us, then we can begin to see what it truly means when he calls us to be a holy, righteous people. Redemption means that Jesus can put into anyone the nature that was in himself. 
all the life-changing truth that he gives us in Scripture are based and directed and speak to that very nature, folks. Are you hearing this? It's no wonder then that some can attend a church service for four, five, six, eight years and not still get it because they've not been reborn. They are still trying to do this with a carnal mind, unregenerated. The carnal mind cannot get what was intended for the spirit person. Impossible. And so the living word of God is directed at, speaks to, is intended for the spiritual person that is now in you because Christ, as a follower of Christ, is in you. Amen? And we have to understand this. It becomes important. His teaching is meant to be applied to the life and nature which he has put within us. Paul continues in verse 2, says, Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. Remember now, he's, Paul is giving us a, a, a great description of what it is to be a servant of Christ. Verse 2, now it is required that those who have been given a trust, that trust being Jesus, along with the mysteries of God's word, that they prove faithful. Here's some good news for us. It's certainly good news to me. Jesus doesn't require brilliance. (laughs) He doesn't require cleverness, nor popularity. He doesn't even require, and this really probably would mean more to me than maybe you. He doesn't even require great speech-making ability. <laughs> he requires one thing, that his servants be faithful. Yes. Yes. We understand that in the context of marriage, don't we? Faithfulness pretty important but why is it that we flirt with unfaithful to our God when we mess with the world like we do we're not required to be successful only faithful consider this with me The most successful minister in the Old Testament was, in terms of numbers and that sort of thing, was was a prophet who caused people to get saved everywhere he went. Not only did the entire crew of the boat that he traveled on turn to the God of Israel, but the entire population of Nineveh, which scholars believe to could possibly have numbered up to 2 million people, every single one of them turned to the God of Israel, repented, and got saved. (laughs) Contrast Jonah with another prophet who preached for 30 years, never ever seen one single convert. 
so impacting <laughs> was Jeremiah's ministry. It's interesting that when Jesus finally came on the scene, nobody ever mistook him for Jonah. Matthew 16, 14 lets us know amongst the few that they were saying who Jesus was, Jeremiah was one of them. But we're a funny bunch of people, aren't we? If Jonah were alive today, books would be written about him. Conferences would feature him, videos made of him. But no one mistook Jesus for Jonah. It was Jeremiah. Be faithful, church. Jeremiah just stayed at it. 30 years. No wonder he's referred to as the weeping prophet. I think I'd be crying too. Just be faithful. It's not about being noticed, applauded, or patted on the back. Jeremiah wasn't, but it didn't matter. He just remained faithful. Besides, in the next couple of verses, Paul lets us know we don't have to worry about what others are thinking and saying anyway. Because Jesus is the faithful judge. Look at verse 3 and 4 with me now. He says, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. A glimpse of the situation at Corinth reveals that many in the church, even though some had adopted his name, you know, as, as their group name, the Paul party, the Apollos party, the Cephas party, so on and so forth, that it would also appear, though, that many in the church had formed uh, this dislike against Paul, turned their noses against his style and his ministry. They had a past judgment on his teaching and therefore rejected his apostolic authority as a chosen servant of the gospel. That was just what was going on in Corinth amongst all the other quarrels and divisions that were happening. And so Paul reminds them that his gospel ministry was not subject to any human judgment. Rather, whether that came from the Corinthian Christians or the world or even his own estimation of his value to the kingdom, Paul dismissed their judgment entirely. Human judgment was, I think, as far as Paul is concerned, and in this context, was as worthless before God as human wisdom, as we've seen already in this letter. Carnal minds are way out of their league when it comes to judging spiritual matters. You agree? Yeah. Rather, as a servant of Christ and a steward of his word, Paul was firstly accountable directly to God himself. Now, I want to 
want you to take note here. This is not Paul rejecting accountability. This is not Paul saying, no, I don't want anyone speaking to me. There are going to be no trustworthy advisors in my life. That's not what's happening here. He's not, that's not what he is saying. Rather, it reflects his wisdom to leave judgment ultimately to the Lord. Besides, we really can't properly judge ourselves anyway. Would you agree with that? Yeah. There, there is no way. You want to know why? Because every single one of us have these things called blind spots. Right? Yeah. I had fun with this last night because not everybody was doing this. And I just kind of said, see, you just showed me your blind spot. <laughs> but we all got them. You see, you've, you've heard the phrase, we kind of look at ourselves through rose-colored glasses, right? And after doing that, we, well, we look at ourselves and we look kind of rosy yeah. to ourselves. But Jeremiah tells us the heart is deceitful <laughs> above all things and, and beyond cure. <laughs> Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17, 9. The phrase translated human court is another interesting term that Paul uses here in chapter 4. It literally means human day. Why is this interesting? Because it is Paul contrasting intentionally the Lord's day that he has already mentioned back in chapter 3. Intentionally contrasting that where we will be held accountable. Remember? We're going to stand before our Lord and we will be held accountable for our, in this sense, our faithfulness to the task that God has given us as faithful followers and stewards of our Savior. Verse 5, Therefore, Judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Everything with me is telling me, don't say this, Dave, but... I'm going to say it. It's kind of like, we'll receive their praise from God or not. <laughs> With this future assessment of Christ, Paul warns the Corinthians to withhold their own judgment of others. When Christ returns, he alone will bring to light, as Paul has written, things hidden in the darkness and reveal the motives of people's hearts. Not only will God judge actions, but it says he will also judge intentions and motives. As a result of this judgment, everyone receives their praise from God. And I think where this would maybe help us understand a little bit better the terms that we've all said and heard 
throughout our entire walk with Jesus Christ is the words that we want to hear when we enter his presence in glory. Enter, right? Good and what? Faithful servant. His, his praise for his people. Enter, welcome, my good and faithful servant. So once again, we are reminded that whether we're liked or disliked, applauded or criticized, spoken well of or slandered, it just doesn't matter. That's pretty liberating, don't you think? Because ultimately, we are in the audience of one. Amen? It's what he says that will count for all eternity. Paul's message to us today is straightforward. Let's have no judgment seat of Christ rehearsals. <laughs> Here on earth, none of us qualifies for that anyway. Let's relinquish judging other people based on what we think, see, or hear. Instead, let's leave all of that to the Lord because he's able to do two things that we as humans just cannot do. One. He can bring to light the things hidden in the darkness. He alone knows the complete story. You and I do not. We only get bits and pieces. Secondly, the Lord Jesus has the ability to reveal the motives of the heart. He knows not only what somebody says or does, but why they have said or done it. No mere human can do that. When we begin to go down the road of comparing the servants of the Lord, it can only lead to trouble and cause unneeded divisions in a church. However, Paul is not saying that we should not judge teaching. For it is him that he's been doing some preaching in a place called Berea. We read about this in Acts chapter 17. It says in chapter 17 of Acts verse 11, Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul was saying was true. Okay? If you have a heart... Here's the connection there. If you have a heart to faithfully serve your God, you will always make sure that what you are being taught is consistent with God's word. Your desire will be to serve God based solely on his word, faithfully enduring and serving faithfully committed to digging in his word. On May 30th, 1982, a streak began that 
in my thinking, may never, ever be broken in Major League Baseball. The streak lasted all the way to September 19th, 1998. For 16 years, Cal Ripken Jr. faithfully showed up, no matter the bruises, the aches, or pain, and played in 2000. 632 consecutive games. Yeah. Breaking the former record set by Lou Gehrig back in the 1920s by 502 games. Today, when the world of baseball talks about Cal Ripken Jr., they're not going to talk about batting averages. They're not going to talk about home runs or gold glove awards that he won. They will be talking mostly. Cal will be remembered mostly by how he just faithfully endured for all those years. While this is a great accomplishment in the world of sports, it does speak to something to us as the people of God. It pales significantly to what God is looking for in his servants. To borrow from that illustration in a way of, of challenging you, what's your streak like in terms of faithfulness, in terms of showing up day after day after day? Paul reminds us it's not about success, just being faithful. Do you want to be a faithful servant of Christ? Well, then, acquire a servant's heart. And then go out in humility with the leading of the Holy Spirit, following, obeying with endurance the Lord's directions, and then watch how God will faithfully use you to advance his gospel and his kingdom. Amen. Amen. Father, we come before you, and we just want to say thank you for your patience and your kindness towards us. We want to say thank you for being our forever faithful God. And even in our times of unfaithfulness, you remain faithful. But may we be challenged this morning. May we take to heart and resolve in our own hearts to endure in faithfulness as a follower of Jesus Christ. To be the servant, the steward that you have called us to be. Faithful under rowers. Faithful stewards of your household knowing the location of the wealth of Scripture. 
May we rise to the occasion. May we realize, God, now more than ever, for those who continue to struggle with a consistency with your word, Lord, may that, may that consistency, consistency be overcome and defeated. And may we move into an ever-growing, overcoming, victorious, spiritual habit of spending time digging in your word. May we see the importance of that in a new and fresh way. We long to be your servants so that that day would be we long to hear those words, enter good and faithful servant. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Wellspring of Life Church in Western Colorado. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please visit wellspringoflifechurch.com. So I will